All right, hey everybody. There we go. Um, if you want to grab your phones and go to the, if you have the Bible app and you want to follow along, there's the QR code there. Um, it's also in your bulletin. Um, let me just open us up uh, in uh, the sermon time uh, in prayer. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, just how wonderful and life-giving it is. And we thank you uh, that even thousands of years after um, after this psalm that we're going to read today was written, uh, that you still use this to speak to your people and that, um, that these are your words. And so we just pray that you would help us to treat them uh, with the reverence they're due and uh, that you would just help us to learn a lot from what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, it's good to be back. I missed last week. Uh, Terrence filled in for me. Um, I was actually supposed to preach at two different churches last week. I was going to preach here and then run over uh, to the Mission District. Boy, it's hot up here. I'm going to take my sweater off. Um, I was supposed to teach in the uh, Mission District, too, at 10.30. And uh, 2.30 in the morning, I woke up and I was like, huh, I don't quite feel so good. And uh, I spent the next 10 hours yakking in my bathroom, you know. And uh, by the way, I have this weird stomach thing that I don't think I've told you guys about yet. My other church kind of knew about this, uh, where it, it's not that important. But anyway, sometimes I throw up way more than everybody else in the whole world. And sometimes I'm just like, oh, I have to throw up. So at some point in the middle of a sermon, I'm going to be like, hey, guys, I'll be back in five and just play another song. And uh, that's going to happen at some point. But anyway, for a guy who throws up a lot, man, boy, that was a rough Saturday night. So it got to the point where at three, what was it, Terrence, maybe three thirty, four in the morning, I texted Terrence. Yeah, I was like, hey, I hope this doesn't wake you up, but <laughs> I hope this doesn't wake you up, but there is no way I'm going to be there <laughs> uh, in the morning. So thanks, Terrence, for being uh, flexible. And uh, so that was a rough day, man. Flu, Niners losing. Boy, this is... So let's hope today's a little bit better. Um, we are going to start a new series today. Uh, we just did the seven churches in Revelation. Um, and originally, this was going to be a four-part series. Now this is going to be a three-part series. Um, and we're going to talk about the gospel using psalms. Um, so let me ask you this. In church, we use a lot of words. There's a lot of churchy words that the rest of the, the world doesn't use. And uh, uh, we don't always know what they mean. Um, when I was in college, I'll tell you, uh, I got caught. You ever do this where you get caught pretending you know what a word means and you have no idea what it means? And then somebody says to you, you don't, you don't know what that means, do you? <laughs> And then you're like, ah, you got me, you know. So my roommate used some word. I didn't know what it meant. I pretended like it was some slang word. I pretended like I knew what he was talking about. I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, and then he made fun of me real good. And so after that time in 2005 or six or whatever, I said, you know what? Never again. I'm just going to if somebody uses a word in a sentence that I don't know, I'm just going to ask him what it means. And I don't care how embarrassing it is. And sometimes it's embarrassing because it turns out there's a lot of words I don't know. Uh, but. Uh, I think it's a good practice, right, to just stop pretending like we know what stuff means and actually sit down and think about it. There's a lot of those church words that we use, but we never really define. We don't talk about we uh, we use them a lot, but we don't say this is what it actually means. Uh, one of those is the word gospel. Like if I asked you right now to stand up in front of everybody and define the word gospel for us, you think you could do it? Yeah. Anybody want to give it a shot? Yeah, that's what I thought. No. <laughs> right? See, because, I mean, you might come up with something, but what does the word gospel actually mean? Well, um, 
the Bible defines the gospel in a few different ways, right? Like, uh, or it uses the word gospel in a few different ways. Here's the first one. In Romans 1.1, Paul says uh, he's a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and that he is set apart for the gospel of God. So that's the first one we see there is Paul is set apart for the gospel. The second one here is uh, Romans 1.16. If you guys know Dennis, our buddy who's in Argentina right now, uh, this is his tattoo is this verse, Romans 1.16. Um, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for, and then it defines the gospel, right? The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul, first he says, look, guys, I'm set apart for the work of the gospel. Now let me explain to you what that is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Um, we read in the book of Mark that Jesus uh, taught the gospel. It says, this is kind of like in the middle of a sentence here, but, um, and Jesus showed up saying, uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and this is like his first sermon. He says, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus' sermons were about the gospel, and then he calls us at the end of the book of Mark to do the same thing that he did and to preach the gospel to other people, right? Uh, here it says, and he said to them, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And so what is the gospel specifically? Well, in Greek, um, it's the word euangelion. Um, in your uh, Bible app there, if you're following along, I put in a link to Blue Letter Bible if you want to go read more about that later on. Um, all it really means, the word gospel just means like good news, to proclaim the good news. Uh, the, where the word comes from is, if you remember, I mean, if you think about it, in the ancient world, right, we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have uh, CNN, whatever. Um, like, do you remember when the uh, war in Iraq started in 2003? I don't know, that was a while ago. But I remember watching uh, the war on TV. And not just, like, coverage of the war. Like, they literally had cameras on tanks and stuff, and we could see what was happening in these battles. Uh, the world in the ancient world was very different, right? They would have these two armies, and they would go out into the field or whatever, and they would fight. And somebody would have to go back and tell everybody what happened. And so if you're, if you're uh, you know, your side won, the guy would come back, and he would proclaim the good news. If that's kind of the word. That's where this word comes from, right, is the battle's won. Here's the good news. We don't have to worry about being destroyed by this incoming army. And so the question then, the Bible uses this word, and we kind of took this word for ourselves, the word gospel, to proclaim the good news. Um, but what is the good news about, specifically? When the Bible talks about the good news, what is it about? Well, it's about God and his... Uh, God and his salvation, right? It's the power of God. That's what it said in that other verse in Romans. Uh, but the question, though, is who is God? How does he save? What does he save from? What does he save for? You know, who does he save? Why does he save? All these questions, right? Um, and so the way that we answer those questions, um, there's this helpful framework that I think is very important for us to think about. And we call it the four movements of the gospel, right? Have you ever noticed that the Bible is not a systematic theology. It's not a, a book that's organized into here's what God wants you to believe about himself. Here's what God wants you to believe about sin. Here's what God wants you to believe about this or that. You know, It's not organized like that. I wish it was sometimes because that would make my job a lot easier as a pastor. Uh, but the way the Bible is organized is a narrative. The Bible's a long story. Um, and I really love the way that the story of the Bible flows. And what it does is it tells the story of the gospel in four movements. Uh, the first movement, we call it uh, creation. And that's what we're going to talk about today, where uh, just out of nowhere, God shows up and he creates the world from nothing. 
The second movement is how the people that he created broke the world that he created through their sin. So the second movement is the fall of the world. So then the rest, the biggest chunk of the Bible covers the third movement, which is uh, restoration or redemption. I'm sorry, it's called redemption. And uh, in the redemption narrative, it's how God fixes the problem that we have created with our sin. Right? What did God do about this? And then the fourth movement is how he doesn't just fix the problem of sin and then leave us in a broken world. He puts the whole world back together. And the fourth movement, we call it restoration. So those are the four movements of the gospel, right? Creation, then the fall, then redemption, and then restoration. And the aim of this series is to talk about the gospel using the Psalms. You see, the gospel uh, is like a jewel, where you turn it in different light, and the way it hit, the light hits it, you see all these different beautiful things in the gospel. So there's all these different ways to talk about the gospel. You need to look at it from lots of different angles to really appreciate uh, what is going on. And so uh, using the Psalms is how we're going to do that, is one of the ways that we're going to do that. And so what I did was I picked a couple of Psalms, uh, one to cover creation, one to cover fall, one to cover redemption, one to cover restoration. But what I want us to do um, is to get really good at explaining the gospel using this four-part narrative. Do you remember our, if you were at our last um, luncheon, we're doing another luncheon, by the way, today after church uh, as we move forward with the porch stuff uh, up at the Powell location. Uh, but as we move forward with the porch stuff, one of the things that we are like really kind of gung-ho about is uh, what we call, and we'll talk about this up there today, missional living, right? Where we are sharing the gospel with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. And the point of church is not to huddle together, but it's to come here to train, to get out there and do the work of ministry. And so we have this helpful framework. If you like beer, right? We called it PAPST, like PBR, that disgusting hipster beer, you know? And uh, PAPST is the acronym, uh, is how we share the gospel with people, right? First, we pray for them. Uh, then we ask them about their lives. And they pour that, you know, that takes a long time to where we get to the point where they're telling us all about themselves. Um, then we bless them in ways that nobody else would bless them. And then we share our story with them. And then the last step there, though, in the PAPST acronym is we tell them the gospel story. And so what I want us to do is we're constantly together going to be talking about what is the gospel story? What are these four movements of the gospel? And because eventually we want to get to the point where everybody in this room can sit down with somebody in a coffee shop and say, look, this is what Jesus has done for me. And then let me tell you what the Bible actually says. You, know, you probably think the Bible is just a list of do's and don'ts. And if you do this stuff, God loves you. And if you don't do it, God hates you and you're going to hell. But let me tell you what the Bible actually says. It's this story of uh, the gospel, and then you can kind of walk them through that story. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start with um, uh, creation, and we're going to do that by reading Psalm 104. And then next week, we're going to talk about sin and the fall. And then the week after that, because I got sick, so now we have, uh, we're going to have to combine the last two, uh, we're going to do redemption and restoration uh, together. So we're going to start, oh wait, there's your four movements of the gospel, I didn't know I had a slide for that. Um, uh, Psalm 104, we're going to start, uh, or let me set this up, I guess. That's what I wanted to do. First, when we talk about creation, so this is the first movement of the gospel, is creation. When we talk about creation, it's a very foreign idea now um, in our culture. It's not really uh, kind of kosher to talk about God as the creator. Uh, here's the thing. Let me give you a little philosophical background here. People used to say 
uh, for a long time, scientists believed that the universe was eternal. And this was the consensus uh, across the scientific world. But then what happened was in 1916, Einstein wrote a paper, and I tried to, I read about a bunch of this stuff while I was researching this sermon, and I've been reading about this stuff lately. Uh, and Einstein wrote a paper that I don't understand at all because I barely passed every science class that I ever took. But in 1916, Einstein wrote a paper that eventually led to kind of the idea of what we call the Big Bang Theory. And what that meant is the whole world started, uh, the whole universe started in a single moment and then bang, and it exploded. And ever since then, it's been expanding out. And I think the way that they can tell that that's happening is they can see the light in stars is actually moving away from the Earth. You know, when they they point the Hubble out there, they can see the way that the light is moving and they can tell how old stars are. And here's the thing, though. When When the Big Bang Theory was first proposed, scientists, almost across the board, were universally hostile to the idea. Even Einstein didn't like the idea. I didn't actually Google whatever is the actual quote, but um, uh, he said something like, something along the lines of, I think I might have accidentally just proved that there's got to be some kind of a god or something. You know, he was more of an agnostic, but uh, the idea that the world sort of had a start, uh, or the universe had a start, uh, really went against what everybody in science believed. Because here's the reason. If there was a beginning, there had to be something before that beginning. And this is where all these scientists really stumbled. Uh, Philosophically, there was a guy, uh, Thomas Aquinas. He calls God the prime mover. Uh, He applied the law of cause and effect to the universe, right? If there was a start, something had to be before that start. He called him the the prime mover or uh, the first mover. And in Phil... uh, in philosophy, we call this the cosmological argument for God, right? There's a guy, William Lane Craig, who's a PhD from uh, Birmingham University in England. He put it in these three points, right? Everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. So everything that starts to exist has a cause, right? You started to exist because your parents were, were the cause. They existed because their parents were the cause. You know, everything that starts to exist has a cause. The second thing he says is that the universe began to exist, it didn't, it, it's not eternal. We know that from the Big Bang Theory. The scientists now, now even universally, the Big Bang Theory is accepted as science. Uh, the third thing he says then, if that's true, then the universe must have a cause. And I want to read to you here um, this uh, scientist, Andrea Lindy, from, uh, she's a, a Stanford University physics professor. She wrote this in the Scientific American Journal. She said, the first and main problem is the very existence of the Big Bang. One may wonder what came before. If space-time did not exist then, how could everything uh, appear from nothing? What arose first, the universe or the laws determining its evolution? Explaining this uh, initial singularity, where and when it all began, still remains uh, the most intractable problem in modern, uh, of modern cosmology. So basically, there's this huge gap in the theory. The Big Bang Theory proves that the universe had a beginning. But what came a millisecond before the Big Bang Theory? What was there? And this is actually how the Bible opens up. The Bible explains that the Big Bang Theory fits very well with what we know uh, about creation from Genesis 1. The Bible just opens up. You know what it says, right, in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. It doesn't explain who God is. It doesn't tell us anything about God. It just says, in the beginning, God. And what did God do? He created the heavens and the earth. And that's a really wonderful thing for us to think about. It's, uh, uh, you know, there's all these arguments 
uh, in science now and about intelligent design and all this stuff. And that's not exactly what we're getting into today. But just I love that idea. The Bible just opens up so beautifully. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to read Psalm 104, which was written, you know, a lot of years after the creation. It was written um, as a praise for God for what he did in creation. It's really kind of a cool psalm. So let's start. We're going to read, uh, we're just going to kind of walk through this psalm. So the first couple of verses here opens up just talking about the majesty of God. It says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and with majesty. So this is the introduction as we're talking about God, the creator. The psalm opens up with praise to sort of set the tone for the very uh, for the rest of the psalm. Oh, Lord, uh, you are very great. Right? What's greater than being a creator? The creator of the universe is the greatest uh, being that we can imagine. Right? Nothing is bigger than God. And it says here um, that uh, you are clothed with splendor and with majesty. This is kingly language from this time. It's uh, uh, language they would have used about royalty. He's like, Lord, you are the king of all nations. You are the God of all creation. And look how big he is. Uh, he says in verse 2, uh, covering yourself with lights, um, with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now, uh, look at how it describes just how big God is. There are a few of these kind of verses. Um, if you look in the cross-references in your Bible, I bet you can see a bunch there. Uh, but these are some of my favorite verses. I forget. I looked at all of them. I forget. There's eight or nine of these in the Old Testament. And these are some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Look at the imagery. What he says there. Let me read that again. He says, you're covering yourself with light as a garment. And then this is my favorite phrase. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. So some of those verses talk about not a tent, but a blanket. And the, the imagery is like, you know, when you're making your bed and you do that thing where you and you whip the blankets you know and then some and then you got to guess where you're going to put it on the bed while it falls you know and you never get it right and then my OCD kicks in and it takes me 45 minutes to make the bed okay so the imagery is that God did this with the heavens the stars the universe and if you remember a little while ago we were talking about this uh, in one of the sermons just how big the universe is it is crazy big right there are billions of stars i think i don't remember all the numbers there's billions of stars just in our galaxy right and then there's billions of other galaxies and like just the math of how large the universe is is absolutely unbelievable and one of my favorite things to do is go into uh like google images or bing images right and look at pictures from the Hubble telescope, just these wonderful pictures of these nebulas and all this stuff, and just think, try to think about how big that is. And then the psalmist <clears throat> here shows up and says that God just spread that stuff out like we throw a blanket across our bed. That's really wonderful. Uh, I really love those verses, how well that uh, gets across just the majesty and how big God is. We tend to worship like a small God that we try to make in our image. But as we read this psalm, what we see is, man, this God is humongous. Like this God is absolutely magnificent. And he says, you clothe yourself with light. Again, there's this rich biblical imagery of light. Light is life-giving. Light helps things grow. 
you know, it lets us see the world around us. And Jesus picks up this imagery, right? He says, look, I am the light of the world. Or John, in the book of 1 John, describes God as light. Um, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see where we get to the new heavens and new earth. And one of the things it tells us is there's no need for a sun in the new heavens and new earth because God is there and he is perfect light. So the, the psalm opens with this just huge image of this gigantic God who is the creator. And how did he create? What did it look like? Uh, it says here uh, in these next couple of verses, describe God as the creator. It says, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the winds. Uh, oops, I'm missing some verses in the slide. Sorry. Verse four, he makes his messengers uh, winds, his ministers a flaming fire. So it talks now about God above the clouds. It, you know that feeling when you're in an airplane and you break through the clouds and then you see the sunshine and just anybody else think that's cool or you guys just fly all the time. I don't fly a lot because I, well, mostly because I hate it, you know, uh, but, and I hate going anywhere uh, besides San Francisco. But, you know, that's a pretty cool feeling, right? You break through the clouds and you see the, the clouds kind of break off the sides of the wings. And then you look out and you see just the expanse. Um, in the ancient world, they never had anything like that, right? They've, we've kind of conquered the sky. We've sent people to space. You know, we've had people walk on the moon. But to the, in the ancient world, you can imagine just constantly sitting out there and looking up at the clouds and looking up at the sky. And basically what he says is you're the Lord of even the sky, right? Your, your bedroom is the expanse. Uh, you know, you use the wind like a car. Uh, you control the wind. It's a, he talks about uh, flames of fire there, which is a way to talk about, um, was an ancient way to talk about lightning. He says even God controls lightning. Now, lightning to the ancients was terrifying, uh, if you can imagine, they didn't know what it was. They didn't know how it worked. They didn't have Ben Franklin and his little kite with his key. You know, they didn't know all of that stuff. But even now, after we've kind of figured out how all of that works, lightning is still terrifying, isn't it? I'll tell you a story. I was, um, one of my favorite roads in the entire world is uh, Highway 50 from Carson City. It goes across Nevada. It goes across the desert. And there's nothing there. They call it the loneliest road in America. Because what it, it used to be the highway to get across America until they built Highway 80. Now everybody takes 80 to get out to the Midwest or whatever. Anyway, so Highway 50 across Nevada, it goes up and down over seven mountain passes. And so it goes up these mountains and then down and there's these long straightaways and then up a mountain and down. Anyway, so a couple years ago, I was out there on my motorcycle. Uh, every summer I do a big road trip on the motorcycle. And I was out on Highway 50 and all of a sudden I saw this rain cloud come and it started raining. And I'm, oh man, I'm still an hour and a half from my hotel and then the sun went down and you know I was 45 minutes from the hotel and I'm riding up through one of those mountain passes and all of a sudden I was in the middle of like a crazy lightning storm and I don't mean just like you know in San Francisco where you hear the lightning and it's uh it never is anywhere near us here we don't have real lightning storms here uh, where you, you hear the thunder and then, whatever, you know, it's like there's a, a distance between the thunder and the lightning and you're like, oh, that's how many miles away it is or whatever. Okay, this lightning storm that I was in was striking the hilltops like right next to me as I was riding through the rain and I'm thinking, wow, this is a really good time to be sitting on 700 pounds of metal, you know, as I'm riding through this lightning storm. And it was just awe-inspiring. I mean, I was like a little bit scared, but for the most part, uh, I was 
just looking at it thinking, man, this is absolutely amazing what is happening here. This, it was just kind of beautiful. It was really cool, uh, be, mostly because I didn't get struck by lightning. And then I had to go sleep in the rain in a tent, and it was pretty miserable. And uh, Anyway, so uh, the point being that to the ancients, it was even more so amazing. And what it says here is that God uh, is sort of the Lord of that lightning. And what's happening here is he's describing the wind and the sky and the lightning is uh, this psalmist is probably spitting directly in the face of Baal, who at the time, or Baal, was the Canaanite god of weather and storms and all of that stuff. And so all these people in Israel were worshiping Baal and doing all that sort of stuff. And this psalmist comes along and says, you guys know who's the real god of the storms? It's our god. Because not only does he control the storms, he created everything that even makes up a storm. All right, verse, let's keep going. We'll read uh, 5 through 9. Yeah, see, I'm missing a slide for 5 through 9. So follow along if you have it. Otherwise, just listen. Um, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it uh, with the deep as with the garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that you might not cover, uh, again, cover the earth. So here he's talking about how he put the earth together, but specifically what these verses I think are referring to is Noah's flood uh, from the middle of Genesis there. And if you know the story of Noah, it's actually hilarious that we teach this to all our kids because this is a pretty brutal story. Here's what happened. Humanity got so sinful a few, uh, you know, uh, after Adam. We read the genealogy and stuff, and then we come to the time of Noah, and people are so messed up that God basically says, you know what, I'm just going to wipe the hard drive and I'm going to start over, right? This is not working. Uh, and so what he does is he picks Noah out of his grace, not because Noah is so great or anything. He picks Noah, it says, because of grace. And he tells Noah, hey, what I need you to do is I need you to build a giant boat uh, up on the hillside. And Noah spent, I don't remember what was the time. Does anybody know? It was like 100 years or something building this boat while everybody made fun of him. And he was trying to tell them, guys, God's going to send rain and everybody is going to drown and there's going to be this huge flood. Nobody believes him. So Noah gets in his boat. All the animals show up, you know, two by two or whatever. Uh, Plus a bunch of animals for food. I don't think people ever talk about that. That's not in the little pictures, you know, all the stakes that walk up onto the ark. And uh, then the flood, the rain starts and he shuts the door. And then all of a sudden the water start rising. And God basically drowns everybody on the earth except for Noah and his wife. And then their three sons and their daughters-in-law. And everybody in the whole planet dies because of this flood. And so it's actually really interesting, by the way, how almost every culture... Uh, across the board has some sort of a flood narrative. It's not just the Bible. I think the Bible is the true one, but that idea of God or a God or something flooding the world is in tons of different cultures um, because this actually did happen. And so verse 7, what he says there is, let me read this again. Uh, where am I? Verse 7, he says, at, talking about the waters, at your rebuke they fled. Meaning, once God was done flooding everything, he just spoke the word, and the waters went down. That word, at your rebuke, um, is the same word uh, that's used in this Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, It's the same Greek word that's used to talk about how Jesus calmed the storm. You know that story where Jesus is out on the water with his disciples, and they're all freaking out because there's this crazy storm, and Jesus stands up. He was asleep at the boat, by the way. He was supposed to be driving. He's asleep. And he stands up, and he goes, why are you guys all afraid? And he says, hey, storm, cut it out. And then the storm stops, and it says that he rebuked the storm. So it's that same word that's used. Jesus is 
has the power of God Almighty over uh, the waters. And then verse 9, where it says that you set a boundary that may not pass. What he's talking about there is that God promised at the end of the Noah story, look, guys, I'm never going to flood the earth again. I Think of the power it takes from the creator to be able to make that promise even, to say, I know for sure that the world is never going to flood again like this because I caused it, and it's the only way that this is going to happen. And so again, uh, in this next section, um, uh, we see that God has this power over water, and we see just what kind of power uh, he has. Look at verse 10. He says, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. So do you see that you make the springs gush forth? In the ancient world, water was way more important in people's minds than it is now. Um, do you remember a few weeks ago I was telling you about how um, Matt Damon uh, started that uh, nonprofit organization? I think it's Water. I don't know if he started it, but he's a big part of it. Water.org, uh, going around the world and uh, helping people get access to clean water and sanitation and that sort of stuff. Um, because there are still parts of our world where water is a big deal. And, you know, with us, it's not. What do we do? We turn on the faucet and the water comes out. And we never really think about it. Uh, but water is super important, right? Water is life-giving. Imagine your world all of a sudden if all the water disappeared. And sometimes that happened in the ancient world. Uh, like we know the story of uh, Elijah stopping the rain where one day he walks into King Ahab's office and he goes, hey, by the way, uh, God's mad at you, so it's not going to rain anymore. And then he walked out and he disappears for a couple of years. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't rain again until he shows up and they have this big thing with the prophets at Baal. And he shows up and he says, oh, by the way, now it's going to rain again. And this little cloud comes over the mountains and then it starts raining. Right? God has the power over uh, this life-giving water, this thing that we all need. It says that God is the one who gives that to his people. Verse 11. Let's keep going. Um, and what he does is he uses that water to provide for his creatures. It says, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heaven dwell. They sing among the branches. Uh, from your lofty abode, uh, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you actually were thankful for a glass of water? Like you took a glass of clean, fresh Brita water from the fridge. We have one of those Brita things in the fridge. And you took a sip and you were just glad that you had access to water. Because what the Bible says here is that when that happens, it's because God is the one behind the scenes providing that water for you. He created you. He also created the water that you need to live. I think that's pretty cool. All right, let's keep going. Um, so the next thing the psalmist does is he sort of flushes out this idea of God's provision. Look at verse 14. He says, you cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth the uh, food from the earth. So not only does he provide water, he provides uh, food for his creatures, right? So when was the last time you took a big fat bite of a juicy steak or something and you were really just thankful to God that you live in a place where we have such access to food? I think it's really amazing, right? He created you. He also created the food that you need to survive. Ultimately, what the psalmist is saying is that the grass grows to feed the cows and the cows grow to feed me, <laughs> right? Delicious, delicious cows. Uh, verse 15, he continues talking about this theme of God's providence. He says, "In wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So there's all these things in nature that are supposed to bring us joy. 
Um, there's this image we have kind of of God as this cosmic killjoy, right? There's all this fun stuff in the world, and God wants you to not participate in any of the fun stuff in the world so that you can eventually go to heaven and be bored forever, right? That's such a baloney view of God because all this stuff, there are all these things in here that he lists that were meant for joy and were meant to bring people joy. And they're things that God created for them, wine, oil, bread, right? These are his good gifts to his people, right? In our day, we would say something like, well, I wrote this last week. This was supposed to be right before the Super Bowl. But we would say football, wings, Coke, and then a nap, right? These are wonderful things that God has created for us. But now football is off the table uh, to be joyful about. <clears throat> he keeps going. Verse 16. He says, The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home um, in the fir trees. So these trees in Lebanon, you see this all over the ancient, uh, sorry, all over the Bible. Uh, what that was was like their version of redwood trees. These were the biggest trees in the area, and everything was built from these trees because it was the best wood. And if you go into a forest, like if you've been up to Mendocino and you see the giant redwoods, you just stand. You go, wow, this is amazing that this works and it grows. And what the psalmist is saying here is God created that, and he sustains uh, even those trees. Verse 18, he also deals with these weird animals he says the high mountains are for the wild goats rocks are for a refuge uh for the rock badgers that's a really weird verse nobody has that verse tattooed on their arm by the way about the rock badgers that'd be a good one you know uh, psalm 104 18 um but anyway the idea is again they didn't have tv shows like planet earth and they didn't have zoos and stuff where you could see these weird animals they would hear rumors about a shepherd was up in the mountain and he saw some weird badger and he went and told everybody about it. And it was all very mysterious to the ancient world. But what the psalmist says is all that stuff is within God's control. So he, he controls the, the world, the water. He controls the provision that all that stuff brings. He controls even these weird animals. And next what he's going to talk about is how he's created and given us rhythms in nature. Look at the next section here. Um, 19. We're uh, 19 through 23. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know it's time for setting. You make darkness and it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So the next part is he talks about how God created rhythms uh, for our life. People need rhythm in life. Have you ever thought about this? That the way that your life works on a rhythm, that actually is beneficial and God created you that way. And that's why, um, you, you can look this up, but you know up in Alaska where all of a sudden it's night all the time and then it's day all the time, the suicide rates in Alaska are, I, don't, I should have looked it up, but are way higher than they are in the rest of the United States because people get out of rhythm and it really, really messes with them. And uh, it makes people depressed and all sorts of stuff. I know a lot of newcomers to San Francisco have trouble when they come from the Midwest or somewhere and then they move here and there's no seasons. And all of a sudden they don't have that rhythm in life, right? God built rhythms into our lives. Think about it. We have night and day. We have the four seasons, except in San Francisco. Uh, we have the seven-day week that was created by God. All of this stuff is uh, made to help us uh, help us function. And so as the psalmist now is thinking about all these wonderful things that God has created for us, right? He's created water and food and these rhythms. What he says next is he just sort of busts out into praise. Uh, in verse 24, he says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth 
is full of your creatures. So um, I always describe worship like this, and I like this description. Have you ever seen a really good movie or eaten a really good meal at a restaurant and you just had to tell somebody about it? You know, you find a new restaurant in San Francisco and you're all excited about Kataro, right guys? And you just have to tell somebody about Kataro or you have to tell somebody about Gallardo's or whatever. That's worship where it just it flows out of you because you're so excited about the thing itself. Or when you see a movie and you just want everybody to see this movie because you know how good it is and you know how much everybody will love it. That's worship is that God is so awesome that it just bubbles up out of you. I got to tell you about this God. I got to talk about it. Um, This is what happens here. As he's thinking, all of a sudden, this verse is completely out of place, except that he's thinking about all the stuff that God has done. And he just goes, man, God, you really are amazing. And the earth is full of your creatures. Uh, He continues talking about now some of those creatures. He says, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. One of my other favorite things to do is to go into Google Images and find all the weirdest sea creatures. Look at this thing. I don't even know what it is. I should have wrote down the names of these. Ooh, right? But it's kind of cool. Or look at this. I love these things. Like when you go to the Academy of Sciences, the jellyfish. It's cool there too because they light them up with LEDs and they glow different colors. Um, I don't know what that is. It's like clear. It's a a see-through fish, right? That's absolutely nuts. And... That is ugly, but it's real, right? This is like lives way down in the ocean. Um, oh, here's the other one, the clear fish, the actual clear fish. You can see all the way through, right? Think about what, <laughs> what we just read. Now, with this in mind, let me read this verse again. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. We haven't even scratched the surface of all the dope things that are in the bottom of the ocean, right? This is the last great unexplored part of our world is these oceans. And the psalmist here is praising God for that. He continues to talk about these creatures. He says, uh, there go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Now, what is a Leviathan? There's, this is in a few different places. If you want to read more about it, go read Job 41. Um, but there's a few options. Some people think it's just a way for them to talk about crocodiles or alligators or something. Um, I think what's actually happening here is in the ancient world, they had this fictional myth and the Leviathan was like kind of like what we would call a dragon. And this dragon, what it represented was chaos. And in the ancient world, they were just the, the, the natural world just seemed very chaotic. They had no control over it, and it was big and it was mysterious, and they used the Leviathan to talk about that. An example from our time is if we were trying to describe somebody who was really strong, we would say uh, he was like uh, Hercules. Now, we don't really believe Hercules was a guy, but you know what I mean. It's like uh, it's this myth that talks about strength. And so in Job 41, Uh, There's a whole description of Leviathan. And the idea is that the world was chaotic, but God is even in control of the chaos. And so uh, I think that's what he's talking about here. This, this, This animal kingdom seems very chaotic to us, but to God, it's really nothing. And then uh, 27, he keeps going and how God controls nature. He says, these all look to you to give them food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away your breath, uh, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and renew, uh, renew the face to the ground. So now again, here the theme is you, you, you. He's talking to God. He's saying, you did this, you did this. In nature, God is the main character. He created it. He's still involved, and it's totally awesome. And so our response then is we should worship uh, the creator. 
This is what happens next. He says in verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Have you ever thought about this? That God made creation, and we're supposed to take delight in it. Every time you take a bite of a big, thick, juicy steak, you're supposed to go, God made this. These cows delicious, right? Actually, you know what's my favorite is pork. I think, man, when God was building pigs, he was really on his A game. There is a lot of good kind of stuff you can get out of a pig, you know? You got your bacon and your pork shoulder, and oh, man, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Your ham slices, whoo, nice, right? So when God created all that stuff, he had our joy in mind. But not only that, he had his own joy in mind. It's when he, when he created everything, he looks at it and he goes, man, this is good. And he creates the fish. This is good. The sky. That's what it says. God takes joy in his own creation. uh, And our response as we look at him doing that is to worship him. Uh, Let me read this last, uh, almost last section here. 31. Uh, He says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May, the, may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. So I'm way over my time, and I don't have time to do the whole end of the sermon the way I wrote it. So here's what we're going to do. is I want to show you, in these verses, there are four commands as we respond to God as the creator. The first one is to give glory to Yahweh, to give glory to God. Rejoice in the Lord. The idea of glory means weight. Anybody here lift weights? I don't, see? <laughs> uh, but, you know, if you lift weights, right, you know, you know, heavy weights. The idea is behind glory is to give God weight in your life, to make God heavy in your life. And the question then is, is that true of you? Is God important to you? Is he heavy in your life? Does he weigh on your life in that you constantly know he's there is an idea? Um, that's the first thing. The second thing, he talks about how creation trembles. Uh, in theology or, you know, all over scripture, we call this the fear of the Lord. And like I always say, it's not like fear of the Lord, like those movies where they jump out and scare you. Boom! Oh, I'm scared of God, you know? That's not what we're talking about. The fear of the Lord means, as you think about all the stuff that we just read, my favorite verse being the one in verse 2 where he says he's uh, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Think about just how big the sky is. Think about how big the universe is. And God just threw it across like, a, like, a, like he's setting up his tent or like a blanket. I love that. As you think about that sort of stuff, you should, you should, in your mind, you should have that sense of awe. Where you just go, wow, this God is way bigger than I give him credit for. Way bigger than I imagine him to be. And when that happens, you're touched with what we call the fear of the Lord. You have a, a proper sense of who you are and who he is. The third thing is sing, right? Worship. He talks about singing there. Again, singing is just an overflow of the joy of your heart. That's why we worship. Uh, is, uh, we just have to let this joy uh, of the Lord flow out of us. And then the last thing he says is to meditate on God's good creation. How often do you think about how big God is? Right? We live in a world where we're constantly distracted. And let me tell you this. I am worse at this than all of you put together. Not having a phone in your hand for five minutes. You know, I take my phone everywhere. And where was I the other day? I forgot my phone and I practically had a panic attack. You know what I mean? I was, uh, I forget, I was like out of the house with no phone. What? You know? And I remembered, oh yeah, when I was in high school, I used to just stand there and wait for the bus and do like literally nothing. You just wait. Right? But we don't have that anymore. We're so busy that we don't have time to meditate and contemplate on the things of God. And one of the things he says here is 
May, the med- may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. What he says is just meditate on God's creation. Um, there are studies that show that people who don't see stars, who live in cities like us, who don't regularly see stars, they get messed up in the head in a lot of different ways. So you're all crazy. Good, good news. No. Uh, but it's true, right? When you don't spend any time in nature, it really it helps you lose a sense of wonder. So if you can, get out of the city. Go walk around. Find a tree. Go look at a tree. Uh, if you can't do that, when the botanical gardens opens up, go walk around the botanical gardens and leave your phone in the car. Well, don't leave it in the car. People will break in and steal it. But maybe throw it in a backpack or something. Spend time in God's good creation. Go to the park, whatever. I don't know. Um, but here's the other thing. Even as we live in this city, if you've been in my apartment, you see the view. Even as you look at the city, you can admire God's creation because here's the thing. The Bible says that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. And one of the things that God tasks us to do is to build culture. And so as we build cities, we're actually fulfilling the mandate that God has given us. And so when I look out at my window, I remember having this conversation. I had a friend who has a view of the sunset when it's not foggy in the sunset, you know. And uh, I was saying I would trade your view for mine any day. We have this magnificent view of downtown and everything. Everybody loves our view. What I was telling him is I'd rather look at the sunset every day than than you know, downtown. And what he said, that's kind of what he said to me was, well, this is the pinnacle of God's creation is mankind. So when you're looking at that, you can even praise God when you look at the Transamerica building and the lights on the the Bay Bridge and just spend time thinking about who God is and praising him for that. And that's uh, the end of the psalm. Uh, Actually, the end of the psalm is this. So that's where we're going to end. And then I'm just going to read this verse kind of to end it. But then look what happens here. At the end of the psalm, we're praising God for creation. He made these weird see-through fish, and he controls the chaos of the Leviathan, and he spreads the universe like a blanket, and this, this creation is amazing. And then this, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Well, that verse came out of nowhere, didn't it? So we have this wonderful, perfectly good creation, and then just out of nowhere, let sinners be consumed from the earth. Where did sin come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. (laughs) Cliffhanger, right? Come back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel.